pray together. Father, we just pray that as we come before your word, that you would open our eyes to see you, that you would open our minds to understand you, and that you would open our hearts to feel your presence and to feel your spirit moving. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I've told you uh, several times that there are uh, several Christmas movies that I like to watch every year during the Christmas season. And the season is incomplete if I don't get to see each and every one of these movies. Well, one of those movies is the old-fashioned movie called White Christmas that features Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye. It's a great movie. Uh, I would recommend, if you can get over the fact that it's an older movie, uh, it's a great one to watch. But the movie starts on uh, a battlefield in World War II. And the main character, uh, who's named Bing, Bing Crosby's character, is an entertainer, but he's been enlisted to fight in World War II. And for whatever reason, uh, the movie opens up at a point where there's a break in the battle. And Crosby's character decides that he's going to sing and do some sort of Christmas show for these soldiers. So he gets up front in front of his entire platoon and begins singing Christmas songs. And he gets the song of White Christmas and there's this very soft and serene moment when the camera pans around to every soldier who's sitting there resting on their musket deep in thought and deep of dreams of a place that is very different than where they are, a place of peace. And then all of a sudden at that moment, the peace is interrupted by bombs that begin to fall and all of a sudden uh, the war begins to rage on in that moment. You know, over the past couple weeks, we've looked at, at the Christmas story. And we've looked at it from all sorts of different angles, hopefully. We've seen how angels have visited different people, flesh and blood people, just like you and I, to announce that God himself would come to rescue us in flesh and blood sort of ways. And we've noticed that his birth is far from nostalgic. It was far from peaceful. But in fact, it was a very sort of abrasive birth. It came in the midst of scandal. It came in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of poverty. Jesus born to two teenagers who lived in poverty in a know-nothing town that was shrouded in all sorts of scandal and difficulty. And what you see throughout the Christmas story, and you see this in the first chapter of Luke, is that Luke is trying to build to kind of something big that's about to happen. In fact, if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that the whole Old Testament is building to this moment when Christ would come. In fact, all of human history, we believe, was actually building to this moment when Christ would come, when God would come to rescue his people. But what's so interesting about the passage is that then Luke states it very matter-of-factly in one verse. And he says, She gave birth... To her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because he, there was no room for them in the inn. The way Luke mentions Christ's birth is very matter of factly, and in some ways it's almost anticlimactic. Luke tells us that Mary and Joseph have to travel. At the point in which Mary is about to give birth, they have to travel for a census. A census that was mandated by Caesar Augustus. And the purpose of these censuses would be to, to account for military strength and taxation purposes. To have to do this would be um, irksome at best. It would be a reminder to everybody who was conquered to Rome by Rome 
who was actually in charge. And, and Mary and Joseph, at this very critical time in Mary's pregnancy, have to make this long and arduous journey. And what Luke tells us is that on this journey, Christ the Savior was born. It's, but, but, it, but Luke states it so briefly that it makes us wonder why he's telling us the story in this way. But I think part of the reason he's doing it is he wants to make a very sharp contrast between two different things that have everything to do with power. You see, he opens the passage mentioning that Christ's birth happened at the time in which Caesar Augustus was running the Roman Empire. We know from history that the Roman Empire was probably one of the most powerful empires to ever exist in human history. And Caesar Augustus stood at the very top of this empire as the emperor. And he was so revered, he was so powerful, that many people would, would ascribe to Caesar uh, terms that would only typically be ascribed to deities. He, would be, he was considered a god. He would be called names like Savior and Son of God. And many people think that he, because he was their Savior, because he was the Son of God, that he had all sorts of powers, and ultimately powers to bring about peace through force, through demonstration of power, and through domination. He probably one of the most, most powerful men in, the, in the, all of the ancient world. And yet, Luke says, Jesus, who was the true Son of God, who had all the powers of God himself, all the powers of creation and miraculous powers there there were, was born in very humble and simple means to Mary and Joseph. And Luke wants us to see the great difference, the great contrast between power that's about to be overturned in an upside-down sort of way. You know, each week we've lit this Advent wreath. And uh, the candles throughout church tradition have represented different things. One week it represents love. One week represents joy. This week's Advent candle represents the idea of peace. And the idea of peace is something that we sing about. It's in so many of our Christmas carols that we sing throughout the holiday season. It's an idea that is celebrated not just throughout the Christmas season, but throughout all time. And what I'd like to do this morning is look at this idea of peace and what peace means. And I'd like to look at it from three very different perspectives. The first is our desire for peace. The second is our lack for peace. And the third is the path in which we can find true peace. But the first is our desire for peace. And one of the things that I believe is all of us deeply desire peace at several different levels. Whether you want to admit it or not, we're all familiar with beauty pageants, right? Whether you've actually watched one, I don't know, and you don't have to admit it or anything like that. But we've all seen beauty pageants, right? And most typically in beauty pageants, there are the contestants, and there's all sorts of sections that they have to get through throughout the process. There's the swimsuit section, there's the evening gown section, and then there's this thing called the interview section. And in the interview section, they want to they hear what these contestants have to say. So they ask them all sorts of interesting questions. And one of the most common questions they ask contestants throughout this process is, if you had any wish for humanity, what would you wish for? And what do all the contestants always say? We wish 
for world peace. Now, have you ever, you ever, you ever sat and wondered, what makes them always say that? What makes them always wish for world peace? And I think part of it is somebody smart understood at one point that world peace is a universal desire. And whatever judges are judging this thing, whether they're from this culture or that culture, that corner of the world or this corner of the world, there's something about world peace that makes it desirable across every culture and every ethnic group. There's something deep inside of all of us that desires peace. There's a universal desire for it. And each and every one of us feels that desire all the time with our lives too. I think we desire it really at three levels. I think we all desire world peace. We all desire to be in a world that is free from violence, a world that is free uh, from conflict. Uh, I can only imagine how many wars are always raging in different corners of the world at all sorts of times. We all would like to see peace and the lack of violence in our world. We'd love to see it in our city that so often is marked by violence all the time. So we want to see peace happen at kind of a cultural or a global level. But we also want to see it happen in our relationships too, don't we? We have relationships that exist in our world, and some of those relationships are good relationships, but some of them are just marked by conflict. We are all broken people, and we are flawed, and we don't like each other a lot of times, and we fight about it. All of us have relationships that we would say are are more strained than they are in a good place, that they're more unhealthy than they are in a healthy place. We experience relational conflict all the time in our lives. But there's even another level of peace that we want, and I think that's an internal peace. Because all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would recognize that often we are not at peace internally. That we struggle with ourselves, we struggle with anxiety, we struggle with our insecurities. We we struggle with a certain sense of dis-ease that we all have, and that dis-ease sometimes can be very relentless. So all of us crave for peace. We all want it, yet very few of us ever truly experience peace. It seems like it is just out of our reach, and peace itself is fleeting at very best, and we all desire for it. There's a powerful scene in um, HBO's documentary uh, that was called The Band of Brothers, which was a documentary that was written, I think it was by Steven Spielberg, about World War II. And in one of the episodes, they're fighting in the, the Ardennes Forest in the trench warfare of World War II, and you realize in the show that it's Christmas Day. And, and the men are out there in the, in the freezing cold, uh, just trying to stay warm in these trenches. And all of a sudden, they hear this, this, this eerie voice coming from across the forest where, where the, the enemy has encamped as well. And what they realize is that the enemy, the Germans, are singing Silent Night on Christmas night uh, in their own German language. It's a very bizarre and eerie scene in, in and of itself. But many people have looked at that scene and it's made them think about an event that happened actually in World War I in 1914, which was called the Christmas Truce of 1914. Uh, World War I was just as bloody, was just as violent as World War II, but for whatever reason on Christmas Day, a truce on the Western Front was called. And what happened is British and German soldiers came out of their trenches And they met in the neutral zone that's between those two trenches. History tells us that 
that they started playing soccer with one another. They started exchanging gifts with one another. And they started actually going to uh, funeral services for the enemy. And at these funeral services, they were breaking into spontaneous Christmas carols on this Christmas day. And together, British and German soldiers who were fighting one another began quoting Psalm 23 to one another at each other's burial services. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. But history tells us that the very next day, the very next day, the flags were raised and the fighting resumed. And we know that it was one of the most bloody and destructive battles of all of World War I. But for one day, a peace was called and the war had stopped. You know, the truth is, it's as if we get little glimpses or little tastes of peace, yet they seem to be almost instantly shattered by disharmony and unrest. And we are reminded of the second point, and that is that most of our experience is a lack of peace. Most of our life experience is a lack of peace. Julian Norwich was a, a person who uh, uh, kind of considered a, a saint in, the, in, the ch- in church history, and she wrote all about the spiritual life in kind of the medieval times when there were castles and knights and all that sort of stuff. And, and she wrote about the faith in this time, probably in the, the 1300s or the, or the 1400s, and she wrote very eloquently about what the spiritual life is really all about. And she said this, she captures what we're talking about very, very powerfully. She says this, she said, he, God, showed me a very lofty spiritual delight in my soul. And in it, I was completely filled with everlasting certitude, firmly sustained without any painful dread. The feeling was so glad and so spiritual that I was entirely at peace, at ease and at rest, so that there was nothing on earth that could have disturbed me. But that lasted only for a little while. Then I was transformed and left to myself in depression, weary of my life and irked with myself so that I kept the patience to go on living only with difficulty. There was no comfort and no ease for me except faith, hope, and charity, and these I had in reality, though I had little feeling of them. And immediately after this, our Lord gave me again comfort and rest of soul in delight and certitude, so blessed and mighty that no dread, no sorrow, no bodily or spiritual pain that could be suffered should have caused me distress. And then the pain returned to my feelings. And she goes on and on about these tastes of peace that she feels in her internal heart that just seem to be so fleeting and go as quickly as they come. It's very similar to our own experiences in life. It seems as if just when we've achieved an internal peace with ourselves, some sort of contentment within inside of us, a new grief arises. It's as if once we reconcile one of those prickly relationships in our lives, a new one becomes broken. Just when one treaty between two warring countries is signed, war is declared on another one. And to borrow the words from a movie, it's as if we come this close to peace and then we watch it brush past us like a stranger in the crowd. It brings us to a big question. A big question about life and about faith. 
And that question is, are we to live in this perpetual futility? Or is there a path in life that fulfills our deepest desires for peace? You know, what Luke does is, you know, we wonder, how can we, how can we get peace? How can we attain it? And Luke's contrast that we looked at the beginning of the sermon is really very helpful as we try to determine how to get peace in this life. Because the common response to a lack of peace in life is the response that would be very similar to what Caesar Augustus would tell us. That peace comes through rule, it comes through force, and it comes through, di- through domination. But we know the gospel response, Jesus' response, is very different. Because what Jesus tells us is that peace is accomplished through weakness. You see, I think a lot of times when it, comes to, when it comes to lack of peace, we like to address it by addressing the symptoms instead of what is the ultimate cause of lack of peace. And when we treat it with symptoms, we only come up with fixes like power and force and, dom- and domination. But Jesus came to treat the very root, the very cause of so much of the disharmony that exists in our world He came to tell us that the cause of all of our conflict and our lack of peace and our disharmony stems from our disharmony with God himself. You know, what we believe the gospel story tells us is that God created all things good. If you read Genesis, it tells us about how how he fashioned creation, how he made it beautifully, and he made uh, man and woman to be in the Garden of Eden, and everything worked together in perfect peace and perfect harmony. There was perfect fulfillment in Adam and Eve's relationship with one another. There was perfect fulfillment in their relationship with creation and their relationship with God. But then Genesis 3 tells us that something very tragic happened that quickly things changed. Mankind chose to follow his own path. Because of that, sin entered into our world. And because sin entered into our world, conflict entered. It entered internally into our souls. It entered into into our relationships with one another. Now war and pain and conflict were normative But ultimately what happened in that fall was that we became enemies with God because of our sin. Before mankind was in a perfect relationship with God, our creator, but now we were at odds with him. Our relationship with God was intended to be the most life-giving, the most vital relationship that we have as human beings, the relationship that we were actually created to be in, and now that relationship was fractured. You see Adam and Eve beginning to be in conflict with one another. You see their sons killing one another. You see conflict becoming more and more normative in our world. And all of it stemmed from the one broken relationship that each and every one of us feel. And that is the broken relationship we have with God, our Creator. And all conflicts from big ones to internal ones stem from this broken relationship, our broken relationship with God. And what the gospel tells us is that we are absolutely helpless to fix it. We cannot fix this relationship. No matter how hard we try to manipulate it and how hard we try to earn ourselves back into God's favor, we are helpless to fix this broken relationship. 
So Christ had to come, and he had to make right all that had gone wrong in this world. And what the Christmas story tells us is that Jesus came in the form of this baby so that peace with God can be reestablished. He came on mission to bridge the gap that we could not bridge to secure peace with God that we could not achieve on our own. You know, Luke does something really powerful in his gospel that is actually really very easy to miss. You almost have to read the whole gospel in order to catch it. Because in Luke chapter 2, verse 7, he says this about Jesus, that Mary and Joseph wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a manger. But if you fast forward the gospel several chapters, you'll read Luke 23, verse 53, that says this. They wrapped Jesus' body in linen cloth and they laid him in a tomb. You know, the path of peace was not through pomp and circumstance. It was not through power. It was not through force. It was not through domination. The path of peace came through Christ giving up his very own life to secure peace for you and I. And what we believe happens when we experience that peace between us and God, it's as if it begins to transform us in in concentric circles that move out. We begin to experience peace internally, and God starts to bring peace into our relationships and peace into our world. But what we believe is ultimately at one point God will come again, and he will bring perfect peace and harmony back to our world. But for now... We simply have to live with little tastes of God's peace in our world. You know, the Advent season, we've talked about this, the Advent season is all about waiting. It's all about waiting with expectation and and joy at the coming Savior that would come. But it's also about another sort of waiting. It's about awaiting for the second coming of God when He will come And he will make right all that has gone wrong in this world once and for all. In the in-between period, the period that we live in right now, we get to have little tastes of God's peace. But ultimately, we will sit down and feast at the idea of peace when God comes and he makes all things right.